0: Y'all wake this morning? Amen. Barely? <laughs> Why don't you uh, elbow your neighbor and say, are you awake this morning? Okay, and you have my pastoral permission to do as many elbows as you need to on this daylight savings time. Because friends, we got, some, we got some important Bible study to do today. All right, y'all you you ready for that? Yes. We, are, we are people of the book. We want to dig into the Word. And uh, we got some really, really interesting stories uh, that I'm excited to share with you today. And I I titled this sermon carefully, Jesus Denounces the Temple of Doom. Yes, okay, the few laughing uh, get my little nod there to the Indiana Jones film of a similar name. Um, But I hope that you'll understand what I mean and why it matters by the end of the sermon. Uh, We're looking at two stories that are a little tricky. Um, And we have the story of Jesus curiously cursing the fig tree and then we have the infamous story of Jesus overturning the money tables in the temple. Now, uh, and I invite you to turn to Mark 11 uh, to pull that out, verses 12 to 25. We're going to be diving into that section. And Mark has utilized his sandwich technique again of storytelling. He starts with the cursing of the fig tree. Then we get the overturning of the tables in the temple. And then we're back to the fig tree again. And so the story of the fig tree is given to help us interpret what Jesus is doing in the temple. Does that make sense? Are you with me? So, this all takes place right after Jesus has triumphantly entered in Jerusalem, riding on a donkey with the shouts of Hosanna. And uh, when Jesus did that, that was an intentional political symbol on his part. Riding in as king. And then we get to verse 11. As Jesus is coming in with the shouts of Hosanna, It says, Jesus entered Jerusalem. He went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything, and since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. So after all of this fanfare, after this big parade into the capital, into the the temple courts, Jesus gets to the temple and he just kind of looks around. He looks around at everything, and it's it's almost like he's inspecting things. Oh, be quiet. It's almost like he's inspecting things. He's looking around. And Mark seems to be hinting at that Jesus knows that he's going to have to do something about what he just saw. And so the next day, Jesus goes on another inspection. Verse 13, he sees in the distance a fig tree and leaf. He went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. Jesus is done with this fig tree. And we know from verse 21 that the disciples understood what Jesus was doing as a curse, a calling down of divine judgment on this tree. So Jesus, he inspects the tree. No fruit is found. He calls down divine judgment. What Jesus did with the tree is what he's going to be doing in the temple. The cursing of the tree is a prophetic picture of the denouncing of the temple for telling us its eventual doom. So Jesus inspects the temple like when he gets there just like he inspected the tree and he finds it to be barren of fruit. And now it's time for him to publicly denounce it and announce that judgment is coming. So Jesus goes into the temple in a sense to curse it. I mean this was a significant political statement. This is a huge deal. Why is this a big deal? I think it's hard for us to discern the significance of the temple for a Jewish person at this time, especially someone who lived in Jerusalem. It would be like rolling the White House, the Capitol building, the Supreme Court, the National Cathedral, Wall Street, and police headquarters all into one building. That's the significance of what happens in the temple. I mean, theologically, this is where God is. This is where his presence is, and they believe that the temple showed God's special favor upon the people of Israel. As a nation, this is what makes them different and distinct from all the other nations. The temple is also where most people in Jerusalem worked. It's where they, it's where they uh, got their employment. It's also where most people stored their money. I mean, what better place, what more secure place to store your money than where the presence of God is? I mean, who wants to murder right by, or not murder, who wants to rob right by God's presence? Um, And so it's also where the priestly class, uh, the chief chief priests, the scribes, the elders, this is where they held legal and religious power. This is where disputes and cases were settled as well. And so Jesus is interrupting, subverting, condemning, protesting the temple. Him doing this was bound to get him in trouble. It's right after this, it says in verse 18, that the leaders began to look for an opportunity to kill him. So what Jesus did at the temple, this was a public, defiant, dramatic protest that the whole system was corrupt, barren, fruitless, and worthless. You know, sometimes God had his prophets do dramatic things. Uh, He told Hosea to marry a prostitute. He told Jeremiah to walk around with a wooden yoke on his neck. He told Isaiah to walk around without clothes for three years. Yes, that really happened. Go read it in Isaiah 20. It's a sign of God's judgment. And so Jesus is acting like a prophet. He is is giving a dramatic sign that is announcing judgment on the temple. Now, sometimes you might hear Jesus' action at the temple described as the, the cleansing of the temple. But I want to suggest to you that we need to cleanse that thought out of our minds. Because Jesus is not cleansing the temple. Uh, In Mark 13, just two chapters later, Jesus prophesies, he says to his disciples, Do you see all these great buildings? Not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be torn down. Why would Jesus try to cleanse something he knows is going to be destroyed? Why would he try to reform something that he knows in a short while is going to be put to an end? No, he's not doing that. His actions at the temple, they're meant simply to make a prophetic point the temple and its leaders stand condemned by God and the end will be coming. So I've started calling it in my mind, Jesus denounces the temple. To denounce something means to publicly condemn it. Jesus is denouncing it. So Jesus denounces the temple of doom. It is doomed to destruction. Now, if you think about most uh, denouncements or public protests, uh, uh, there's usually some type of uh, public injustice that people are taking issue with that is propagated by those who have the power. And you might see that these issues are, are uh, that they are condemning, might be on a sign. And so I was thinking about this. You know, what was Jesus denouncing? You know, if Jesus had brought in a sign to the temple that day, what would be on his sign? Now, I think likely it would have contained three things, three errors. Now, Scholars are divided on exactly what Jesus is condemning and protesting here. But I think we're on pretty safe grounds to conclude that these were crucial issues that Jesus took issue with. The three heirs have three E's. Economic injustice, exclusive nationalism, and empty religion. Let's look at the first one, economic injustice. You want to notice the target of Jesus' prophetic action. He could have halted the sacrifices going on in the temple. He could have halted the prayers or, or the worship or the singing, but his direct prophetic action is towards the commerce in the temple. Says in verse 15, he begins driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. Now, as a general principle, there wasn't really anything wrong with the with the simple fact that there was Uh, money changers, and the ability to buy sacrificial animals. Um, This was a necessary system for the sacrificial system, which was God's idea, right? And so, uh, especially travelers would need a way to buy pure sacrifices to bring to God, and so this was set up to enable the people's worship. The problem was how this system could be taken advantage of by the powerful, I mean, we know human nature. We know how power works. And we know that the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Right? And so, this money system in the temple was ripe for injustice to happen. And it specifically says that Jesus turned over the benches of those selling doves. Do you know what kind of people bought doves for sacrifices? Yeah, the poor. The poor doves were the animal, animal prescribed by God for the poor. Now, people began to believe uh, in the theology that if you're poor, if you're suffering, then somehow you are not right with God. You are not blessed by God. And so if you're, in a, if you're poor, you might think, I need to go make more sacrifices at the temple. So what are you going to do? You're going to bring the little money that you have and buy the doves so that you can be made right with God. Now, Not not only is that kind of a wrong thing by itself, but there is evidence that the leaders could also drive up the prices of the animals that they were selling at the temple, resulting in wealth for the chief priests, the Sadducees, the temple officials, who were well-known for their wealth at the time. So whatever the case may be, it seems that the rich religious leaders got richer off the poor, who became poorer through the sacrificial system that was set up by those in charge. You following me? So you can see why Jesus is upset with this system. He's upset with this. Practicing justice, right, equitable, and just relations, especially on behalf of the poor, is the chief concern of the entire Bible. All right, we love Micah 6.8. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. But do you know what comes after that? It continues, verse 10. Am I still to forget your ill-gotten treasures, your wicked house, the temple, and the short ephah, which is a curse, that's a measuring for money? Shall I acquit someone with dishonest scales with a bag of false weights? You rich people are violent, your inhabitants are liars, and their tongues speak deceitfully. Therefore, I have begun to destroy you, to ruin you because of your sins. I don't think these are verses we want to put on a coffee mug. (laughs) Man, the Lord is upset with injustice, and so is the Lord Jesus. He says, You're not practicing justice. This is completely barren, fruitless, and worthless. The place, remember the fig tree had some leaves, it looked like it might have some fruit. The place where it looked like people might be worshiping God, practicing righteousness, practicing justice, what you think might have spiritual fruit is actually completely barren, worthless in the sight of God. In fact, it says you've turned God's temple into a place of robbery of the poor, economic injustice. Jesus is denouncing this. The second thing Jesus is denouncing is exclusive nationalism, exclusive nationalism. In the next two issues we're going to look carefully at the scriptures Jesus quotes because they give us the context of what he's doing. So Jesus he's put a temporary halt on some of the temple operations then he starts teaching in verse 17. And as he taught them he said, "Is it not written, 'My house will be called the house of prayer for all nations'?" Now, Jesus is quoting Isaiah. And the key word here is nations. Gentiles, the peoples of the earth, those beyond Israel. You see, Jesus says the purpose of the temple of God's house was to be a place for all the nations. Israel was called by God to be a blessing to the world, to be a light to the nations, to show people what God was like. But the problem was the temple became not a symbol for the nations, but a symbol of Israel's patriotism. N.T. Wright says, the temple had been intended to symbolize God's dwelling with Israel for the sake of the world. But the way Jesus' contemporaries had organized things, it had come to symbolize not God's welcome to the nations, but God's exclusion of them. And there actually were signs all around the Temple Mount. In fact, archaeologists have discovered these. We have these. Um, and, it's, and on these signs, posted all around, says, no foreigner may enter within the railing and enclosure that surround the temple. Anyone apprehended shall have himself to blame for his consequent death. Remember back in Acts when people thought Paul had brought a Gentile into the, the temple and they're about ready to kill Paul? I mean, this was a huge deal. And this was posted in multiple languages, so it was unmistakable. This place is not for foreigners. You're not allowed in. We know Jews and Samaritans hated each other and we know that people were expecting a Messiah to come defeat the Romans, their enemies, those Gentile enemies. So violent revolutions were were a common occurrence in the time of Jesus. And the the temple became almost a a, a patriotic, kind of a a symbol of those who were focused on this, this excessive patriotism and nationalistic ideology. It was a symbol for them. And so many Jews got caught up in this. They got caught up in this in Jesus' day. We think about the zealots, remember them? They, wanted, they want to use violence to establish the kingdom of God. Now, unfortunately, uh, the same can be said of Christians throughout church history. Christians have been tragically susceptible to getting swept up into nationalistic propaganda. Something that really terrifies me is the countries that fought World War II, were majority Christian countries. Germany, the home of Martin Luther and the Protestant Reformation was a Protestant Christian nation. Most people there went to church. Most people there said the creeds. Most people there worshipped every Sunday and took communion. And 90% of German pastors, Lutheran pastors, they, they supported the Fuhrer. Hitler was able to do what he did because he had the support of most of the church and at least no real resistance from those who claimed Christ. It's because they were swept up into a nationalistic ideology that trumped their Christian identity and the calling of Christ to love enemies. In fact, tragically, the same is happening today even in Russia and Ukraine. In fact, you may have seen this, the Russian Orthodox patriarch, Kirill, he recently gave a sermon justifying the war in Ukraine. You'd hear, you'd hear this in church if you were in Russia. He called it a spiritual struggle, a war against sin. Essentially, we need to be in this because this is a, this, we need to spread Christian values. Oh man, that's an oxymoron. We need a war to spread Christian values. It's the same tactic used in Germany as well in some ways. And Putin supports the church, and the church supports him. So I say all this because every Christian, every person who is a follower of Christ, needs to be extremely aware of getting swept up into nationalism, nationalistic ideology, especially ones that claim to spread Christian ideals. And every Christian needs to be ready to embrace peace when people call them to take up arms For whatever issue. In fact, one of the the theologians I really like is a guy named Stanley Hauerwas. who taught at Duke for many years and he has this poster on his door. I'd like to show it to you. You probably can't read the small print but it says, a modest proposal, a modest proposal for peace. Let the Christians of the world agree that they will not kill each other. It's a modest proposal. Let your mind wander on that for a little bit and you might wonder, well, how can I tell who's a Christian and who's not? That's exactly the point. (laughs) But let's at least agree, Christians should not kill each other. If Christians had decided this, perhaps there could never have been a World War II. In fact, most of the people fighting in Russia and Ukraine claim the name of Jesus Christ. And they're taking up guns to kill other people who claim the name of Jesus Christ. This is a shame. We follow the Prince of Peace. We follow the Prince of Peace who said, love our enemies. And I, I, I hope to God and pray to God that none of us in our generation ever have to face situations like these that I've mentioned. But I at least feel it is my duty to bring these things up so that you have in your heart and mind God's vision for the peace of the nations, the house of prayer for all peoples, that we don't get swept up into the nationalistic ideologies that are out there that call us to fight one another. But God rejects this exclusive nationalism so that we can be people of peace, so his house of prayer can go to all nations. Are you with me? Jesus rejects this exclusive nationalism, and he, finally, he confronts empty religion. He turns over the tables, he quotes Isaiah, and then he quotes another great prophet, Jeremiah. He says, "You have made it a den of robbers." That is from Jeremiah. Now, I would like for you to see the whole context of what Jesus is quoting. We're going to do some Bible study. Jeremiah seven six through ten. This is right before the part that Jesus is going to quote. Says, "If you do not oppress the foreigner, the fatherless, or the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not follow other gods to your own harm, then I will let you live in this place." In the land I gave your ancestors forever and ever. But look, you are trusting in deceptive words that are, okay, does it go on? Okay. Will you steal and murder, commit adultery and perjury, burn incense to to Baal and follow other gods you have not known and then come and stand before me in this house which bears my name and say we are safe, safe to do all these detestable things? So basically, the people think they can practice this economic injustice, they can practice violence, they can be involved in sexual immorality, they can follow other gods, they can essentially do whatever they want, but they can come into God's house and say, we're safe. We're safe because we offered sacrifice. We're safe because we offered worship. We're safe, we're safe because God is here. It's like saying, well, I can go to church I know God forgives sin and I can just go live however I want. I'm good. That's not true. And so when we get to the quote that Jesus says in verse 11, has this house which bears my name become a den of robbers to you? But I have been watching, declares the Lord. Now David Garland, he says this den of robbers, the den is the place where robbers retreat after having committed crimes. This is like a mafia stronghold. This is like if you've gone out, you've done your bad deeds, now you've come back to the safe place. We're safe in here no matter what we do out there. But God has been watching. God sees what's going on. He knows how they're living. And just like Jesus inspected the fig tree, just like he looked around in the temple, God is looking around and he sees. He's not mystified by it all and he sees the barrenness and rottenness of the whole thing. Their religion is empty because the rituals only serve to justify and to make people feel better about what they do out there. It makes them come in, I can confess my sins, I've offered my sacrifices, me and God are good. Now I can go out there. Is that not a present danger in church today? That this this can be a place where we can just feel better about our sin and go out there and go back to it? We, cannot, we can't do that. we got to repent. This is Lent. But it should be every, every time. But especially Lent. So Jesus, he publicly denounces the temple. It's a hotbed of economic injustice, exclusive nationalism, empty religion. So what is God going to do about these things? The conclusion? The temple is doomed. The temple of doom to destruction. And Jeremiah's conclusion and the, and the prophet is that God is going to judge the nation And Jesus is announcing judgment as well. So it says in verse 20, In the morning as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. In other words, it's destroyed. Remember, Jesus had said, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And this is what will happen to the temple. And of course, we know Jesus was absolutely right. There still is no temple after Rome destroyed it in 70 AD. It's gone. No one's ever ate from it again. And Christians were like, okay, you know, no big deal. We don't, really, we don't need the temple anymore. We have Jesus, right? Uh, but don't forget the significance of the temple for the Jewish person of that time. I mean, this is where God dwells. This is where he hears their prayers. This is where atonement for sin is made. So if the temple is destroyed, if the sacrificial system is gone, how will I be able to pray to God? How will my sins be forgiven? How can, my, how can his presence be among us? So the question that they ask is then, but now, how then shall we live? And the answer Jesus is going to give is by faith. It's by faith. That's is why we, we continue on to verse 22. Have faith in God, Jesus answered. Truly, I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and does not doubt in their heart, but believes that what they say will happen, it will be done for them. Now, Jesus says this mountain, not any mountain. I mean, this isn't, Jesus isn't like commending a magic word. You can go up to to the Rocky Mountains or you can go to some of my favorite places, Yosemite, and you can say to the mountain, be moved. No, he's saying this mountain, where are they? The temple. They're at Mount Zion, the mountain of all mountains. This mountain. And so, it's a prayer that this mountain would be thrown into the sea. The sea being a picture of total judgment. Things that go into the sea are judged and destroyed. Right? So, basically, the whole, this, they're praying that this whole thing is corrupt. It needs to be cast into the ocean. In fact, scholar Timothy Gamba says, The mountain in verse 23 refers to the Temple Mount, which has become a place of injustice and oppression of God's people. The prayer then for the mountain to be thrown into the sea is a prayer for justice. If God's people pray for the burden of injustice to be removed, they will be heard and God will act on their behalf. So remember that parable that Jesus told about the persistent widow and she goes to the judge and he says, if she keeps crying out, keeps crying out. And the lesson is if God's people, and Jesus says specifically, if they cry out for justice, they will be heard. It's the same principle. This isn't, this isn't a, uh, 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 an admonition that we can just pray about whatever we want, get whatever we want, God's a genie. No, no, no. But it is a promise that God really, really cares about justice. And if we keep praying for justice, his promise is, is that he will set all things right. That one day that prayer will be answered. And Jesus assures them, the loss of the temple, it's not a loss of access to God in prayer. And it's not yet made explicit in this passage, but Jesus, he's been replacing the function of the temple all along. Right? He announces the forgiveness of sins. He brings healing to people in need. The outcasts, the Gentiles have been welcomed in and he has said he's going to give his life as a ransom for many. So the sacrifices won't be necessary because Jesus will make an atonement for sin. And Jesus is now the place where we will access God in his healing presence. By faith in Jesus, we can approach the Father for anything we need. We don't need the temple anymore. But we do need a forgiving and faith-filled heart. So Jesus says in verse 25, you're not standing at the temple, but when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them so that your Father in heaven may forgive your sins. The new temple is going to operate by faith, prayer, justice, forgiveness. So the old temple has been denounced. May the Lord Jesus empower us to be the new temple. May we help rid the world of economic injustice exclusive nationalism, and empty religion. And friends, may we live by faith in the power of prayer, seeking justice for the poor and the oppressed, seeking to forgive those who have sinned against us. And may we even love our enemies. And may we have the faith that God will hear our prayers for justice, and one day He's going to answer those and make all things right. Amen.